the greatest things uh, in my life happened uh, two weeks ago. Uh, Grand Rapids got their very first cheesecake factory, okay? <laughs> All right, I'm just saying, like, that is an important thing. And so uh, I have here uh, my favorite piece of cheesecake. Um, this is uh, the banana cream cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory. And... Uh, <laughs> let, let me try to explain to you what I'm experiencing right now, okay? First, it's kind of like that the caramelized sugars of, of the banana kind of hit the front of your mouth, and, and then the creaminess of the banana cream and the cheesecake just starts to coat the entire palate, like from kind of front of the tongue to, to the back, and, and then that explosion of joy and everything perfect in the world. It hits your entire being and body, and it's amazing. Uh, you've heard the, uh, the phrase, right? If a picture is worth a thousand words, did I say that right? Yeah, a picture is worth a thousand words, but let me just tell you that a bite of that cheesecake, that's got to be worth like 10 million, I'm just saying. And I would love to give each of you a piece, but I can't, so you're just going to have to live vicariously through my mouth. This morning, uh, turn to your neighbor though and tell them what's the favorite, uh, your favorite bite. What's your favorite bite? Turn to your neighbor, share with them your favorite bite while I enjoy another one of this. Mm. All right, all right, I'm going to bring you back. Uh, I, I actually have uh, a number of perfect bites. Uh, I'm not going to get into all of them today, but banana cream cheesecake from Cheesecake Factory is one of my perfect bites. There's a verse in Psalm 34 that says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Look, as... As cool and awesome and wonderful as words are to describe God, nothing would be better than to actually be in his presence, right? I mean, can you imagine what it would have been like to be alive 2,000 years ago in Galilee? To just literally chill with Jesus, right? To, to, to have a glass of wine with Jesus, to enjoy a slice of cheesecake I don't know if they had cheesecake, but I, we, if they did, I guarantee Jesus would have loved it, and we would have had a piece together, okay? Have a meal with Jesus, to go walking with Jesus, to listen to him teach, to hang out with him, to laugh with him, to cry with him. That would have been awesome. 4,000 years ago, to have been with the nation of Israel when they first meet God Almighty at Mount Sinai and become his special treasure. Like how awesome would that have been to be in that place when that actual thing happened? And, and what do we do today? Where do we go today to experience that? Do we only have to listen to the words of those before or is there a way to taste 
and see that the Lord is good. Uh, last week, uh, Dr. Bird showed us this map, and I thought it was super helpful, so I wanted us to be simply reminded of it. Uh, you can remember uh, they were in crisis in Egypt when they were actually in bondage, in slavery. And so God comes and he rescues the nation of Israel, right? That salvation that happens as they cross through kind of their baptism through the Red Sea where God parts the waters of chaos and he brings them through on dry ground. And they make their way over the next few months down to Mount Sinai. Last week, Gary talked about the manna that God gave to Israel, a reminder that God provides for our needs today, that God wants to keep us in a place where we continually are reminded that we need him every single day, each day needing his new mercies in our lives. And his goal then, of course, after salvation is for relationship. God desires to engage with us, to tell us what are the things that we need to know on how to live the kind of lives that are going to bring him glory and honor him and allow us to experience the life that he truly, genuinely created us to live. That happens in Exodus 19. God wants to do more than simply rescue them. He wants to relate to them. And what happens in Exodus 19 that we're going to look at in just a second is actually a blueprint for how we continue to meet God today. If you have your Bibles, you can open up there, Exodus 19. If you need a Bible, you can just raise your hand. We'll have some folks uh, in the back that will grab one for you and just kind of bring them down, I think. Chad Bopri is going to help with that. Thanks, Chad. <laughs> so if you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll have somebody that can just run down the aisle and uh, make sure that you can grab one. You can follow along with us. We're going to be in Exodus 19. Pull out your phone. Uh, pull up the Bible up there. You can follow along that way as well. Exodus 19 says, On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Uh, just side note, if you're ever reading the Old Testament and there's a word that you don't know how to pronounce, just say it with conviction and everybody will think it's right. <laughs> Verse 3, then Moses went up to God and the Lord uh, went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. So God's like, look, you saw all that stuff and how I've come and rescued you, carried you on wings of eagles, right? And I've now brought you to myself. They're here at the foot of the mountain. Look what God says. Verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. God says, look, I want to do something with you, Israel. Now, all the world is God's. All right, he owns all of it, all the nations, all the peoples, the tribes, the language, like all of it. He owns it. But he chose Israel to be his special possession. Now, whenever God chooses us for something... It's for our benefit, but never only for our benefit. You see, he says that there's three things that he's doing here. Israel's going to become his 
special treasure, right? Then they're also going to become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, kingdom of priests means priests, uh, they represent God to others. So when he makes Israel his special possession, it was for their benefit, but also for all of our benefit. A lot of times I used to think like, man, I'm not Jewish. How come they got to be chosen? Why not me? And God's like, because. (laughs) I don't understand it. I don't know why. God said because. But what God also says to me is the reason I chose them was so that they could become a kingdom of priests. They're supposed to represent me to all of you so that the blessings that they experience, you too, Torrin, experience. And the beauty of Jesus is that Jesus then makes anybody who gives themselves, gives their life to Christ, be able to experience that as well. We, we get to join into the family of God. So priests uh, are people who represent God to the rest of the world. That was their role. That was what they were supposed to do. A holy nation simply means that they were set apart for that job. Interestingly enough, in 1 Peter, the apostle Peter, right? You guys all remember him? He's the, the outspoken disciple who's always sticking his foot in his mouth. But every now and then he says something great. In fact, we're going to see something great that he says a little bit later. Peter actually says in 1 Peter, when he's speaking uh, to five churches, he says to those churches, uh, you are actually now that special treasure, that special possession of God. You are that kingdom of priests. You are that holy nation. The church actually takes on what God is doing here in Exodus 19. Keep reading with me, verses 7 and 8. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of all the people, uh, of the people, and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to Yahweh. So God comes and says, hey, if you'll do this, then I will do this. And Moses goes and says, hey, God wants to do this. Uh, he wants to make you his special possession. You're going to become a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a holy nation set apart to do this work of reflecting God to the rest of the world. Are you willing? And they say, yes, we are so down. We are so in. That's what we want. All right, very cool. So God says, fine, get yourselves ready then. Because in three days, I'm going to come and we're going to ratify. This is almost like a marriage ceremony where there's vows that are being spoken. And God is going to come down on Mount Sinai in incredible, unbelievably powerful ways, all right? Flip down with me to verse uh, 16. Verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Uh, We don't even have a way to kind of like recreate this experience in a way that makes sense for us. Uh, I've, I've never been uh, in the middle of an earthquake that was also a volcano that was also uh, a, a crazy loud rock concert or something. Like, there's no way for us to kind of recreate this experience. It was so overwhelming, intense, powerful, that the people are literally shaking. This isn't like hyperbole. Oh, it's so crazy. Like, I'm, No, they're literally like, they don't know what to do with themselves. Like this is an intense moment because God Almighty 
has chosen to come down on the mountain. Keep reading with me. Then Moses led the people out of the camp. They're not even yet at the foot of the mountain assembled around God yet. Led them out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 1. And God spoke all these words. You see, what God does now is as he's meeting with the people, he's beginning to tell them the kind of relationship that he wants to have with them. It's a relationship that's actually going to help them. They're going to know what God desires and how God would like them to act and to live and how God wants them to represent him to the rest of the world. And this is actually going to help them experience the very best life they can possibly live. And so God speaks out the Ten Commandments. Did you know that? The first time that Israel hears or sees or learns about the Ten Commandments, God is literally speaking the Ten Commandments over them. And so if you were to continue reading the rest of chapter 20, you would see each one of the commandments. God speaks these commandments over him. And then we get down to verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. Look at what they say. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. Again, they're not talking in hyperbole here. This isn't like, dude, Moses, this is just way too intense, man. Like we can't, like they're literally afraid they're going to die. I don't know what was going on. I don't know if it was like the insides felt like they were about to burst or if it's like their hearts, like they can't stop. Like I don't know what they were experiencing, but it was so intense. They literally start begging Moses to go speak to God and say, please have him just speak to you. You come and tell us. If God keeps talking, we're going to die. This is a over-the-top intense experience that they have as God makes them his special treasure. As they vow together to enter into this covenant relationship. Now, uh, I've shared some of this with you before. In fact, I had planned on skipping over chapter 19 and 20 as we were going through Exodus, because we can't deal with all of it. Uh, And then as I was kind of preparing for what I I thought God wanted me to teach this week, uh, I felt the Spirit say, I need you to teach this. I I need my church to hear this again. I need my church to be reminded of this. I need them to understand why this matters. Because this is actually, I think, one of the uh, most, I would even say, the formative moment in Israel's history. And it becomes a blueprint for you and I in how we are to experience the power and presence of God to enter into that relationship that he desires of us. So let me give a, a kind of a quick and dirty Uh, ecclesiology, a little move through the Old Testament on how we come to this today. Now, if you're a note taker, that's awesome. Take notes, write stuff down. A lot of stuff's not going to be up on the screen though. I'm going to walk us through uh, a little bit of a history of how they wind up recreating this day throughout the Old Testament and why it matters to us today. Now, before I jump into that though, uh, this became a very, very powerful moment in the life of Israel. In fact, it became kind of a, uh, a defining moment for them as a nation. Now, what do you do on really, really important days? 
on really, really important days, we give them a name, right? Like if I was to say to you, uh, 4th of July, you would call that Independence Day, exactly, right? Uh, if I was to mention a particular day that happened in 2001 that changed uh, uh, America, you would say that day is called 9-11, exactly. Yeah, we give names to important days in our culture, right? Your birthday, your anniversary day, right? All those things. We give these names, Christmas Day. Israel does the exact same thing. A really important day, they give it a name. Now, if I was going to give this day a name, uh, I, I think there's a lot of really great options, all right? Uh, I would call this day Ten Commandments Day. Right? I mean, that sounds like, like that feels like it fits like what is most important about what has happened on this day. Or, or maybe I would call it the day of smoke and fire. That's got a nice ring to it. You can put that in a hat. The day of, like, that, that makes sense. Uh, but God wanted Israel to remember what made this day most special. And so if you were to actually flip over to Deuteronomy 9.10 or Deuteronomy 10.4 or Deuteronomy 18.16 or Deuteronomy 4.10 or a bunch of other places, you would find that they actually named this day the day of the assembly. Interesting. The day of the assembly. Why? Because God wanted them to remember that when they assembled around him at Mount Sinai that he was powerfully and uniquely present among them. I wouldn't have necessarily thought that that was the most important thing, but it actually becomes so important that not only does the day get named the day of assembly, but then God tells his people throughout the Old Testament, I want you to continue to assemble around me, gather around me, and when you do that, we're going to recreate this moment, this formative moment of when you became my special treasure, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And so uh, Israel doesn't obey God very well, they, they Said they wanted to, but they don't, and so they have to be disciplined, and so they wind up wandering throughout the wilderness for 40 years and before God brings them into the promised land, and so they basically go on a 40-year uh, um, camping trip, all right? And God says, hey, when you go camping, uh, I want you to build me a tent. It's called the tabernacle, and I want you to put the tent up whenever you stop to put your tents up, put my tent up first, put me in the middle, and all of you camp around me. All right, he says this to them in Numbers chapter 2, verse 2. And then God tells them, I want you to then gather around me, assemble before me at all these certain times. So there's all these sacred assemblies. If you go to Leviticus 23, you can read all these different times that God tells the nation of Israel, I want you to assemble before me, assemble around me. So during these assemblies, God promises to be with Israel in their midst once again, like he had been on Mount Sinai. You see that in Deuteronomy 31, 9 and 13. And because God was present at these assemblies, these were special assemblies for that reason, uh, Israel is said to, uh, or is being described as being before the Lord, okay? Being before Yahweh. In other words, God is with them uniquely in their presence. All right, you see that being used in Leviticus 9, Judges 20, 1 Chronicles 29. And so, eventually, over time, Israel actually is given the nickname, the Assembly of the Lord, the Assembly of Yahweh. So you're going to see this all throughout the, New or, excuse me, the Old Testament, uh, Deuteronomy 23, 1 Chronicles 28, 
Micah 2.5, those are just three different areas where Israel is actually called the assembly of Yahweh, all right, the gathering of Yahweh. You're like, all right, T, that's cool, but um, what's, what's that all about? Well, when Israel finally gets into the promised land, they build the temple. God's presence, his physical presence, has been kind of contained to the Ark of the Covenant. And when they get into the promised land and they build the temple, then God's presence uh, is moved to the Holy of Holies. And Israel is commanded during that time to all come and gather around God, assemble before him, where they will experience that same engagement and presence with God in that place. So the question is then, where do we go though? I mean, that's awesome that Israel got to experience that and that God's physical presence was at the temple and they could gather around him and experience that. But where do we go? Where's our Mount Sinai? Uh, Where's our tabernacle? Where's our temple that we can gather around? Well, if you're reading your Bibles in the original Greek, New Testament, that is, uh, it would be very clear. Unfortunately for you and me, I don't think either of us read the Greek New Testament. I know I don't, and I'm guessing you probably don't either. If you were reading your Bible in Spanish, it would probably be more clear, but alas, we read in English, most of us. You see, in the Old Testament, uh, the word for assembly, the assembly of the Lord, or the day of the assembly, is a very common word. It's the word kahal, Q-A-H-A-L, all right? It just literally means gathering or assembly, okay? So whenever you see the day of the kahal or the kahal of Yahweh, that, that's the word. Now, uh, about two, 300 years before Jesus comes on the scene, uh, Greece has um, kind of conquered most of the world. Alexander the Great, uh, they conquer most of the world. They're ruling over Israel. Uh, there's uh, many Jewish uh, people who are now living in other parts of the, the Greek empire, and they don't speak Hebrew anymore, but they still want access to the scriptures. So a couple hundred years before Jesus comes on the scene, they translate the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek language, okay? The word kahal in Hebrew assembly, gets translated into the word assembly in Greek, which is the word ekklesia. Ekklesia. Okay? So, kahal and ekklesia, same word, two different languages. It means gathering or assembly. All right? Now, if you have your Bibles, flip open to Matthew 16. I want to talk about the very first place in the New Testament we see this word come up. Matthew chapter 16. Matthew 16. We're going to start in verse 13. Remember that guy Peter? Uh, This is when he actually gets something right. It's pretty cool. So, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, Caesarea Philippi is way up north, okay? Uh, it's It's a long, long walk, probably a couple days to get from where Jesus does his ministry with the disciples. He takes them on this long walk to get up to Caesarea Philippi because there was something very uh, special up there. Uh, It was the Temple of Pan. Uh, Pan uh, was one of the garters of kind of the the gates of Hades. Uh, There was actually a, a cave there on this huge rock that they had built this temple. And it was what they thought were the gates 
of Hades, the gates of the underworld. Uh, there was, uh, uh, there's like a, a, a spring, I guess you would say. And um, there's this kind of area in the cave where there's uh, water. And they would actually do child sacrifices um, at that place, at that temple, uh, to try to appease the, the gods of the underworld. And so God takes the disciples up to this place. And look at what Jesus says. Jesus says to the disciples, who do the people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I will build my what? Church, okay? And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus takes the disciples to the gates of Hades, and then he says, not that rock that everybody thinks is the, where hell comes from, but Peter, you, little rock, I'm going to build my church. And if I'm Peter, I'm like, right right I mean like he asked the question Jesus does and Peter gets it right who do you say you're the Messiah you're you're the son of the living God and Jesus is like bro yes you got it Peter way to go man and Peter's like and then Jesus says hey and check it out I brought you to the gates of Hades to this rock that they think it comes from and I'm telling you Peter not that rock but Peter you rock I'm going to build my church on you, and the gates of Hades can't prevail against it. Peter's going to be like, come on, boy. Let's go, right? Let's go. And then Peter's like, but Jesus, what's this church thing you're talking about? You know how many times the word church comes up in the Old Testament? Zero. Not once. The word church doesn't come up at all in the Old Testament. And now the very first time out of nowhere, Jesus says, yo, I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And Peter's like, sweet, but what's a church? (laughs) I'm down, but no. Does Peter say that? The, The disciples, they don't bat an eye. Why don't they bat an eye? Why are they not surprised when Jesus says, I'm going to build my church on you? Do you know why? Because they're reading it in Greek. And they've been reading the Old Testament in Greek. And all throughout the Old Testament, they've seen the word ekklesia over and over and over again. The day of the ekklesia. The ekklesia of the Lord. The assembly of God. And now Jesus says, Peter, on you, I'm going to build my ekklesia. You see, this was not a new word for them. When we read it in English, we get this new word, church, that we've never heard about. And it sounds like it comes out of nowhere. But for the disciples, they had heard this word all the time. They knew exactly what it meant. On Mount Sinai, God had assembled, Kahal, Ecclesia, the nation of Israel, and they became his nation, his holy people. And now Jesus is saying, Peter, I'm going to build my assembly, and it's going to be on you, and it's going to be open to anybody who believes. 
In fact, just a little bit later, uh, he's going to say, where two or three, ecclesia in my name. Just the word actually there is synagogue, but it's the same idea, the same concept. Where two or three gather in my name, right? That's the, the, the world's shortest definition of a church. I will be there. Jesus says that when his church comes together, when they assemble, right? That's literally what the word church means. It's, it's actually, ecclesia is a generic word. It just means assembly, gathering. So when you come together, I'm going to be with you. In the New Testament, we see this word all over the place. In fact, it's over 100 times throughout the New Testament. We translate it church. It's actually a really unfortunate translation. Uh, it comes from, uh, some say that it's connected to a different Greek word that stands for like the house of God. Uh, but it, it comes out of an old English word, a cirque. Uh, also connected to uh, an older Germanic word, kirke. And then it kind of became kirk and then church, and now church. And it literally means a uh, house of God, okay, a place you come and worship. Here's the problem with that, though, all right? The church is not the building. Church is assembly, all right? If you don't assemble together with other people, you didn't go to church, Okay, you can walk into any building you want to. That doesn't mean you went to church. It's only if you're there to be with God together with others. That's what it means. So I recommend we all learn Spanish because in Spanish it says congregation from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So that's how we all ought to do it. But alas, you probably won't. Neither will I. Although I, that is my life goal to learn Spanish. I should get on that at some point. Um, uh, here's what I want you to, uh, to do, though. Flip with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And then I want to explain to you why this matters. Because the blueprint of the church actually comes out of what happens on Mount Sinai. It's why it's such an important distinctive for us to engage with so that we understand what we're supposed to be doing when we gather, what we should be experiencing. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, let me flip over there. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I want us to read verses 16 and 17. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? Now, a little earlier in 1 Corinthians, he says this to individuals, that we are, as individuals, our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. In this spot, though, he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to the church at Corinth. The you there is plural, okay? Don't y'all know that you yourselves are God's temple, okay? So the gathering of the people in Corinth, they are God's temple. He says, uh, and that God, God's spirit dwells in your midst. In other words, when you are all together, you are God's temple, the place that God dwells. Because back uh, before, it was actually at the temple in the Holy of Holies. But now he's saying, when you gather, you're the place together that God's spirit dwells in your midst. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy the person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. Uh, if you were actually to flip over to chapter 5, verse 4, you would see this. Paul continues on, he says, so when you are assembled... When you are ecclesiaed, and I am with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present. You see that? And when the power of our Lord Jesus is present. There's something powerful that happens when we gather together as the body of Christ. You want to know where to find 
that spine-tingling hair on the back of your neck rising up, powerful experience. God wants us to find that at church. You're like, well, that's nice, but uh, I, I haven't. I don't know what that looks like. If you've never had that kind of an experience with God in church where you're just like, man, I know he's here. And like your heart's beating and like you get that chicken skin going on and you're just like, whoa. Let me just tell you something. Something's not right if you've never had that. Now, I'm not saying that our faith is all emotions based. It doesn't matter what we think. You're just trying to have this crazy experience. But I'm telling you that God is a God who is connected to all of our senses, our mind and our body. And when he comes and meets with Israel on Mount Sinai, it was a powerful thing. And so powerful that Israel had a physical reaction to it. And friends, we're supposed to have a physical, mental, emotional reaction to being in the presence of God. Everybody that was ever in God's presence had that kind of a reaction to it. And God says, I want you to experience that when you gather together. So let me try to illustrate why this matters and what it looks like, okay? Uh, back in 2004, uh, somebody told me about this, this uh, artist called Ryan O'Neill. Actually, he goes by, that's his real name. Uh, he goes by the, the, the band name Sleeping at Last. All right. And uh, they were like, you got to check this guy out. Uh, the, the band, they're so, they're so good. Listen to him. It's fantastic. I was like, all right, that's cool. Like, so uh, I did. I remember I bought a CD. I was one of their first CDs uh, that had come out. It's called Ghosts. And I was listening to it. And I was like, oh. Yes. And it was so good. And whenever you hear something that you love, right, you want to share it. So I was telling my wife, I was like, baby, you got to listen to this CD with me. I'm trying to tell all my friends. And so uh, since I love it so much, I want you just to get a little, little taste, a little taste of some Sleeping at Last. Uh, this is one of his cover albums he did. You can take a listen. All right, now it's one, it's one thing to actually hear somebody, all right, when, when they're just singing. When you hear somebody, you're like, man, it wouldn't be better like if I could see them, right? So I got a little video. This is another song he wrote for a movie called Twilight where uh, he had just gotten married like uh, a few months before he wrote this song. And he says that he actually used his re relationship with his wife as kind of the, the foundation uh, for it. So go ahead. Now I'm going to actually let you watch Mr. Ryan O'Neill. Listen to this. All right, all right, you can listen to more, but I'm not going to let you. So uh, 
after I kind of listened to him and shared him with friends and like I'd seen him uh, on video, I was like, man, I would love to see this cat in person, right? Like I want to see him in concert. So I happened to be leading a young adults ministry at the time uh, here in GR. And uh, I, I knew that he was fairly like new uh, to, the, to the industry. He wasn't super well known yet. So I was like, I'm going to call and see if I can get him to come and do a concert for us. So I actually call up his management uh, which happened to be his mom at the time, and uh, <laughs> true story. And I said, hey, we would love to bring you in to do a concert uh, on a Sunday night uh, for kind of our young adults ministry, and, and uh, I, I had a, a budget set aside, and I, I said, how much, you know, could you do that? How much would it be? And she gave me the number, and it was so cheap uh, that I was like, yes. And then I got on the phone and actually called the management of uh, uh, Phil Wickham and brought Phil Wickham in. And so I had Phil Wickham open up and sleeping at last, close the night, and it was the two of them with about 150 of us in this small little venue at Calvary Church's chapel, and it was magical. Small little audience, folks who were so in, these, both of these cats are like just phenomenal voices. We were doing worship with Wickham, and then sleeping at last kind of closed it off, and Ryan is just crushing it, and we're all, it's just one of those nights just like, ah, oh. like you didn't want it to end. And so I kind of got to know Ryan a little bit. He's from Chicago, uh, not that far away, and uh, we had some uh, f- friends that were kind of mutual, and, and, and what I realized is that the only thing better than listening to somebody or seeing them on the screen is having them with you live and in concert. So friends, would you give a big round of applause to Mr. Ryan O'Neill? I'm kidding, he's not here. Oh, I'm, so, I'm sorry, no. So bad, I know it's terrible of me. I don't, <laughs> I know, I know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I couldn't help myself. Uh, no. <laughs> I don't know Ryan that well, okay? I, just, I, I wish, I wish. I would absolutely love to have. Uh, look, what, what is it then? Why are you so bummed, right? You got to hear him. You, you got to see him on the screen. Why are you so outraged at my lie? Why? Because of presence, right? Does he want to know what makes a live concert so much better than just listening to the recording or seeing somebody on video. It's the presence of the artist and the presence of the fans. You see, friends, I I can't bring you uh, sleeping at last, but I can bring you God the Father. You see, when we gather together as the church of Jesus Christ, God is with us live and in concert And God wants you to experience all that that means emotionally, intellectually, physically. When we worship him, when we gather together as the church of Christ, the assembly of Christ, we are coming around Jesus. And when the body gathers together, Christ as the head is powerfully, uniquely present with us. So I'm going to ask the band to come up and we're going to sing two more songs this morning, to actually apply what we're talking about, an opportunity to recognize that God is with us right now. And while they're coming, I want to read one final scripture. As you're flipping to Hebrews chapter 12, I want to remind us that when you give your life to Jesus, 
Jesus gives you his spirit. And therefore, God is with you wherever you go. God used to be located to the, to the Holy of Holies. But when Jesus died, the veil between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple, literally the rest of the world, is torn in two. And that represented that Jesus and God is no longer limited to one place, but rather when we trust in Christ, when we give our lives to him, he imparts his spirit into us. And that means wherever I go, I've got the spirit of God with me. I have God with me. All of God, not just a little bit. Right? When you go out on the golf course or for a hike in the woods or when you're at the grocery store or you're hanging out with some of your friends uh, in a small group, right? Uh, God is with Even in the most godless places on earth, like Michigan State, God is still... <laughs> He's still there, okay? Like, even there, God. But there is something unique that happens when we gather together. Jesus said, I've, I'm going to build my assembly on you, Peter. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Friends, we are that assembly he was talking about. The universal church, right? All believers who have gone before, all believers who are with us now, all believers who are to come, right? That is heaven. Heaven exists outside of time. And so right now in heaven, at this very moment, 24-7, we're assembled around the throne of God, praising him. And when we gather together as the local church, not just a universal church, but the local church, we actually open up a window every Sunday to what's happening in heaven. We open up a window and we join in with the worship that's happening there, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And we have the power and privilege of being in the presence of God. That's what he desires for us. Hebrews chapter 12 says this. It's so good. Hebrews 12, verse 18 says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they couldn't uh, bear what was commanded. What's he talking about right there? Exodus 19, yeah. He's talking about it. He says, you haven't come to that mountain. You haven't come to that mountain. So what mountain have we come to? Look, keep reading, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. He's talking about heaven. That's Mount Zion, the place that God exists now. He says, that's the mountain you come to. You've come to that mountain, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful ecclesia assembly to the ecclesia the assembly the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven you have come to god the judge of all to the spirits of the righteous made perfect to jesus the mediator of a new covenant that tears down the wall verse 28 therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken right the gates of hell can't prevail against it let us be thankful and so worship god acceptably, with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Friends, God is with us right now. The blueprint for the church happened on Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. The day that they assembled around God and met God in all of his power. The day that they became a special possession, called out by God to represent him to the world. Friends, that's what you are. That's what we are. And so today, 
as we come together, and next week and the week after when we gather, God is going to be here. And he wants us to experience him and know him and worship him and just bathe in his presence. Let's do that now.